So let's open in prayer together. God, I'm thankful that everybody in this room is here. I'm confident that you have a word for all of us today, myself included. And I pray, like Connor said, that you will make us receptive to it, that you'll give us an attention span to listen right now. Everything in our world moves so fast. Notifications coming in nonstop. So busy. Help us to slow down right now and hear what you have to say. Give me the right words. I've prepared words, but they might not be the words that you need me to say. And if that's the case, I pray you would give me the words you need me to say. That you give us ears to hear and learn because your word is life-changing. And I pray that lives may be changed today by hearing it. We pray for our leaders, our president, our military leaders, our local leaders, our governor, our mayor, our city council. God, help them to make wise decisions. Help them to make wise decisions. They need your help. We think of our friend Jason, who's in New Guinea right now with his family. Protect them, Lord, as they are learning that native language to share the gospel with people who have no idea who you are. Lord, we're incredibly encouraged. This week we welcomed our newest member to our church, Percival Montgomery Pittman. So thankful for all of the little children in our congregation. I pray that they would all grow up strong and strong in faith and that they would love you. Lord, help us to love you right now as we hear these words. In Jesus' name, amen. People sometimes ask me, because obviously we're not in the book of John today, right? Pastor Joe has been doing a sermon series through John, but when he asks me to preach, he says, Spencer, just pick whatever you want. And I'm like, well, that's really hard. There's 66 books in the Bible. The word I'm sharing with you today has to do with the, re- the, reading, uh, the reading plan I've been following since the beginning of the new year. Since early January, I've been, I said to myself, I'm going to read a few chapters in the Bible every day, starting in the beginning. So naturally, that's the book of Genesis. And early in the reading, I ran into a story that a lot of us probably know. Genesis 3, where man falls into sin. Now, this is a narrative that many of us probably know. This might be the first time for some of you hearing this. But there's some narratives in the Bible where it's just, you could hear it, you, could, you already predict what the sermon's going to be about. I mean, like the nativity story, that's one we, a lot of people know. Or Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Or Elisha sending the bears to maul the 42 children. Like, those are three commonly known stories in the Bible. But when we hear stories repeatedly, we often start to listen on autopilot. Like, I already know this. I'll just check out for the next however many minutes. I think that's kind of a dangerous mindset to adapt because what we're basically telling God is, I already know everything about you. And that's really arrogant. 
So here's the bottom line. Some of you have probably heard this story many times. But my challenge to us today is to look at it with fresh eyes. Who knows what God has in store for us with this, and that's why I'm excited to read it. Like I said, we're in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. I'm excited. I hope you are. So let's jump in. We're in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Pause right away. We, we just jumped right in to the middle of Genesis. We need to understand how we got here. Genesis means origin. The book of Genesis is about the beginning of the world. And in just a few details, it all starts in Genesis 1 with God creating the world in seven days. He makes everything, people, animals, life. In Genesis 2, God rests on the seventh day, calling it the Sabbath. And then we get the story of him making the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And God tells them one very specific detail. He says, I've given you this wonderful garden, Eden, but you're not to eat of one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So where we jump into the story, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're tending for it as God, God commanded them. And everything that's happened so far is perfect. There's no sin. But what we just read, Genesis 3.1, is the change of that. It shifts that reality. It starts with this serpent. And if you're anything like me, as I was preparing for this, the first question I asked is, why? If God had the ability to create everything perfect, which he arguably does because he's God. Why would he allow the serpent to be crafty, as verse 1 tells us? In this sermon, I'm going to use the word serpent, Satan, devil, accuser. They're all synonymous. It's the same person. It's Satan. Why would God allow him to be crafty? That's the ultimate question verse 1 poses. Why, and it said more clearly, why would a perfectly holy angel in heaven suddenly choose to hate God? I think the answer is much more simple than we think when we ask those big, lofty theological questions. He suddenly hated God because he could. Because serving God and serving under God was not appetizing to him. And in the words of the contemporary philosopher Taylor Swift, Satan wanted to be the man. He left heaven because he had permission to. That's the reality of free will. God gives us permission to bow the knee to him or not to. But there are consequences with this free will that he gave us. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5-6, that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God could have created us all as autonomous robots to do his will, subservient to him, but he chose not to. And this is why I think that's the case. Some of us in this room are married or in relationships. Some of us are engaged recently as well. How would you feel if your significant other told you, I love you, because they were forced to? Not because that's how they actually felt. Would it feel genuine? Absolutely not. God gave angels like Satan and humans like us free will because worshiping God comes from a place of desire, not a place of compulsion. 
So why is the serpent more crafty? It's because he chose to be and because God allowed him to be. We'll continue in verse 1. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I have to give it to him. He's really sly. Satan. He says, in essence, to Eve, Eve, if God is so perfect and loving, why would he deprive anything from you? If he truly loved you, Eve, he wouldn't withhold anything. Like this one tree. Eve, what he's saying to you is not adding up. You can't trust him. But you can trust me, Eve. That's what he's saying. And this passage shows us that humanity's fall into sin started with a lie, with the distortion of the truth. Since Satan is hostile and, uh, and opposed toward God, everything good that God creates, Satan manipulates. God embodies truth, so Satan at his core is a liar. And he lies right to her face here in 3.5. The serpent tells Eve she'll be like God if she eats the fruit, but back up. In Genesis 1.26, we're told that God made Adam and Eve in his image. In a sense, they're already like God. So Satan's flat out lying to her. Now to be clear, Adam and Eve are certainly not God. But to be made in the image, they're already like her. And Satan is manipulating her. And this really should not be surprising to us. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, it's no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is kind of scary, because it insinuates that Satan has double agents in the United States, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, in the city of Lynchburg, right now, working on his behalf and masquerading as Christians. These are the people that the author of Hebrews warns about in the words we recite every week when we say, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I appreciate that. That was awesome. <laughs> Lying, deception, especially within the local church, it's devastating. It tears churches apart. It tears families apart. It tears marriages apart. And it's no wonder that the vehicle that Satan used to bring sin into the world was a lie. We'll go on to verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We aren't told where Adam is when Eve first talks to the devil. Moses doesn't say if he's 
right next to her or if he's in a different part of the garden. But the reality is this. What we just read tells us that they were together when she ate the fruit, when they committed the first sin in the world. And in Genesis 2.18, God made Eve as a helper to Adam. The inference there that Adam's role is to protect her, to care for her as his wife. But Adam does not protect her in this instance. He does not see her reaching for the fruit and slap her arm away and say, we need to get out of here now. He doesn't. He's passive. And some people will read this passage and use it as an opportunity to light a fire under men, telling them they're too passive and that they don't care, take care of their wives or their families well. I'm not going to do that. And here's why. It's because in this instance, there is equal blame on both people. I'm going to take this moment to acknowledge that whether you're a man or a woman, sin at its core makes all of us passive. It leads us to make excuses for our actions, even, as we'll see in a few verses, to blame God for our sin. It plagues all of us, whether your chromosomes are XX or XY. In verse 7, Moses writes that Adam and Eve realized their nakedness as the first fallout of sin. It's the first symptom. Their innocence is gone. Just like that. The first fallout of sin was a perversion of sexuality. And because of that, it's not surprising at all that Sex is a vehicle of destruction thousands of years later. Our sexuality is soul deep. It impacts who we are at our core. But God designed sex to be perfect. In Genesis 1.28, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that sounds nice. It, it clearly refers to intercourse uh, babies. So... That was before the fall of sin. Sex was designed to be perfect. And in our hearts, we know that sex has the opportunity to be perfect, to be beautiful, but Satan perverted it from the beginning, and he knew exactly what he was doing. And it's likely a touchy subject, and you're probably feeling uncomfortable right now because of past mistakes that we now regret, or because how people in the past have used or abused us or because of a struggle with sex that we're currently facing. But we cannot brush this topic under the rug as a church family, and this is why. Because Satan's incredibly wise. We've already seen it in this story. He intentionally tries to isolate us in sin, especially sexual sin, to make us feel that we're the only person struggling with something, to make us feel like we're the only person battling sexual immorality or sexual addiction, he tries to make us feel dirty, as if no one would understand our pain and our suffering, and he's really good at that. To make us believe that even if we shared it with somebody sitting next to us, that they would just reject us. But the truth is, when we cling tight to gospel-centered relationships in the local church, 
when we stand up to the devil. We don't compromise and brush sin under the rug. When we weep with those who weep, with brothers and sisters who've been battling sexual sin for years, we fight the devil and take aim at the war on sin. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. and I, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, this is really good. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The entire theme of these six verses I just read is blame. Adam blames Eve. Adam blames God. And then Eve blames the serpent. There's no personal accountability taken for any of the actions that just happened. And when God asks Adam why he ate the fruit, he immediately blames the woman whom you gave me. He makes it almost seem like, well, God, you know, if you hadn't given me Eve as a helper, this never would have happened. I never would have been deceived. He blames Eve and God for his actions. And Eve then turns around and blames the serpent for causing her to stumble. And the reality is we will never get away with knowingly putting ourselves in situations that are sinful. I mean, picture it like this. This would be like a guy, he, he sits down and prays at night and he says, God, please protect me from uh, being unfaithful to my wife. I, I am about to drive into the red light district, pick up a prostitute and take her to dinner, but please protect me in this uh, and help me to be faithful to my wife. Who would pray like that? We don't say those kind of things. But if we're truly honest with ourselves, are we always putting ourselves in God-honoring situations? Or is it a lot easier to just cast blame and deflect when we do things that hurt others? Or when you put yourself in a situation you know will not end well? In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul acknowledges of what happens when we constantly blame others for our actions. He shares the fate of those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And it's not pretty. In Romans 1.22 he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. The bottom line is this, when we cast the blame of our sin onto others, in the moment, we might feel good about ourselves and justified and so righteous, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You might be like, Spencer, I don't really like your interpretation of the Bible. The unfortunate thing is I just read you Romans 2.5 verbatim, so your problem is not with me, it's with Jesus. Another thing I noticed in this verse is that God is rather generous with Adam and Eve. You might say, that doesn't seem right. I don't see him being generous. 
He gave them an opportunity to share their side of the story. Even though he knew all along what they had done. In his great mercy, he still gave them an opportunity to repent. To ask for forgiveness for their actions. Obviously they did not, but it still shows an incredible characteristic about God that we should strive to replicate, and that is patience. While Adam and Eve were giving their weak and lame testimony of blame and deflection, God didn't interrupt them. But while God is a God of patience and understanding, many people will fail to tell you when they're trying to get you to pray the sinner's prayer that he's also a God of justice. And in verse 14, he's going to begin enforcing that justice. Let's read that. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God begins by confronting the serpent, and he says, Nobody's going to get away with anything with God. And you might be saying to yourself, you know, Spencer, like, looking outside, I don't really agree with you. People get away with a lot. Like, Spencer, we have a a president who's trying to use our tax dollars to murder children. We have a culture that affirms feelings over biological reality. And if you stand up to that, uh, they're going to cancel you. Spencer, by all account, these people are getting away with it. And they're even being celebrated. Well, it may seem like Satan is winning right now. We know what the Bible says in the end. It's that God gets even with everyone, especially Satan. Revelation 20 verse 10 emphasizes this clearly when John writes, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And you might say, well, that's great that God gets good with the devil, but what about everyone else who's willingly sinning against God and celebrating it? I'm glad you asked, because five verses later, John gives us that answer too. Revelation's a very helpful book. Revelation 20.15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty straightforward. And it's pretty scary at the same time. But God continues talking to the serpent in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, $5 word, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We see God's first promise to us in the Bible in this verse, Genesis 3.15. Even though it's really not a good scene right now, God's basically accusing the three of them for their actions. We know who the offspring is that is being referred to here. It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And there's a big difference between our heads and our heels. Anybody who's ever played a first-person shooter video game knows that headshots win games, not heel shots. And what God is saying right here is that Eve's offspring, generations later, Jesus Christ, is going to bruise Satan 
fatally. Headshot. Jesus will be bruised for a short time. It'll look like nails through the wrists, nails through the feet, and a horrible death. But praise God that Satan does not have control over death, but that our God does. Now God's going to speak to Eve in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Every relationship struggle in the history of the world can be tied back to that verse. Because everybody who's come into the world since these two people has come into a world of sin. A commentator that I enjoy reading for seminary, his name's Tremper Longman, I think he sums this up incredibly well, this verse we're reading. He says, and I quote, what was to be the woman's source of blessing to be a marriage partner and have children is now tainted by the curse. In those moments of life's greatest blessing, marriage and children, the woman will feel most painfully the consequences of her foolish act. This is the epitome of what I was saying when I said that Satan corrupts everything good that God made. But there's something really interesting in this verse that we cannot neglect because in recent years it's been a topic of debate. It's that phrase, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Some Bible scholars interpret this as saying every woman's desire is to butt against their husband. But when we read the Bible at face value sometimes, we miss incredible details. In the next chapter, Genesis 4, verse 7, God uses the same concept when he's telling Cain that he has to rule over sin in his life. When he says he has to rule over his personal desire to sin. Desire is the same Hebrew word in 4.7 as it is here in 3.16. Stay with me. It's going to click. The verb desire is kind of misunderstood. We're Scholars today struggle to translate it. So the truth is, it's not fair to say that all women want to rule over their husband, as this verse might read at face value. But just as I mentioned earlier, it's not fair to only chastise Adam for being passive. Both people have accountability. And the same is true in marriage. Both husbands and wives have to fight to not overly be domineering. That's, that's the world that we're in. That's the truth. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It does not specifically mean that every woman on earth is going to face that, but it's certainly something to consider. Verse 17, And to Adam, he said, now God gives the charges to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is going to be good. Strap in. God 
designed men to be providers. And this comes into full clarity here when he says that Adam is a farmer, the provider of food and sustenance for his family. But the curse on man today is that provision becomes more difficult after sin. And there's a few ways that I see this play out in today's society. The first curse is that some men have no desire to be providers. Rather, they want everything handed to them by their government. And the truth is, if you constantly rely on someone else to provide for you, you're not a man, you're a boy. But this is going to open a great question. This would be a Tuesday night small group question, but I'm going to answer it now. You're probably asking, you might be, so Spencer, can men be stay-at-home dads? Oh, that's a good question. Let's see what God has to say about it, right? You don't want to hear from me. Let's hear what God has to say. Ephesians 5.23 would say, the husband is the head of the wife. This infers that being a husband is a position of leadership. What do leaders do? They provide for the needs of those under them. This would include spiritually, emotionally, and yes, financially. A husband is called by God to provide for his wife and his family. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. If you're injured, chronically ill, those are absolutely legitimate reasons for not being able to provide financially. But what about a nuance that the Apostle Paul wouldn't have been faced with? Like being a full-time college student or a law student or a medical student. There may be a season of your life, men, where school is so taxing that if you were to try to provide financially for your family, you flunk out of school. What do you do then? Right? This is a nuance we've got to consider. Ultimately, the theme here is responsibility. And if you think that you're ready to marry a woman, you need to have a plan for how you're going to provide for her. On July 31st, 2020, I asked Kayla's mother and father to marry her. For men in this room who have had that kind of talk, your blood pressure is probably rising right now because you know it's an incredibly intimidating conversation. As you can imagine, I was incredibly nervous for it. And while I was asking them to marry her, Kayla's mother asked me a tough question. How are you going to provide for my daughter as a full-time student? Tough question. When we moved to Lynchburg in August of 2021, we both knew that I was going to be a full-time student. And we were unsure how much I, or if all, if I was going to be able to work. But the day that we arrived in Lynchburg, I knew that it would be unacceptable for me to not provide in some way. It was almost as if an instinct was activated. And even though I don't provide the majority of income because my wife is the nurse with the purse. Uh, I have felt dignity during seminary being able to help provide to our household income. And if you are married currently and you are in school and you're stressed to the max, you have to realize that this is just a season. And in that season, that's understandable. But that can't be the norm for the rest of your life, men. Because if you're an able-bodied man and you are married, regardless of the century you live in, 
or the age you got married at, you now have the responsibility to provide for your family. Period. End of story. But at the start of this diversion, I asked a controversial question. Can a man be a stay-at-home dad and not provide financially for their family? Especially in the role of maybe taking care of children. I know you're all dying for the answer, and my short answer is no. Spencer, that's ludicrous. How dare you tell me I can't stay at home? Other people in society do it. It's 2024. This is an egalitarian society. Women can vote. They can fight in combat. Why can't my wife provide for us entirely if that's more convenient to our lifestyle? It's because God's word says so. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone, and anyone here in the Greek is a male pronoun, so if any man does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's pretty hard words, I would imagine, for some of you to hear, but God's word is not always easy to agree with at first. But this was God's design for mankind from beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Verses 15 and 18, God discussed consequences for the serpent, for Eve, and for Adam. But verse 19 is technically addressed towards all of us. Not just Adam, Eve, and the serpent, but you and me included. And the truth is, at some point, unless Jesus returns in our lifetimes, which would be pretty awesome, everyone in this room will be dead in the next 100 years. We will all be buried in the ground or cremated, literally dust, like verse 19 said. Pretty morbid, but it's the truth. The math's pretty good. Ten out of ten people die. <laughs> and while our physical bodies will be in the ground, the Bible teaches that there are two places that our soul spirit will end up. It's heaven and hell. And I realize some people don't like talking about hell. Some pastors don't like talking about hell. But since the Bible talks a lot about hell, it's important that we do as well because at Lynchburg City Church, we teach the Bible. John, the apostle of love, depicts people in hell in utter misery in Revelation 14, 10, and 11, saying that they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. In my training with the army, we spent about eight days straight sleeping outside on the ground. It was lovely. Uh, I struggled not sleeping in a bed, as I imagine many of us would, especially thinking that, because we were in a training environment, that we could be attacked at any moment in the night by the enemy. I didn't sleep for the first four nights. Not a, not a second. I was completely disoriented, exhausted, and almost quit my training and gave up my ROTC commission. Because of this, I read this passage about being tormented day and night and having no rest with incredible terror. We often hear popular celebrities, people like that, especially the aforementioned uh, 
contemporary philosopher, nonchalantly talk about ending up in hell as if it's no big deal. What I'm here to tell you is that based on how the Bible describes hell, there is nothing on earth that can compare to the utter misery and pain its citizens will endure. So the obvious next step for me right now as a preacher is to offer an altar call in a very timeshare-esque way, emphasizing the importance of praying a prayer so that you can have fire insurance and do not have to worry about the fire and sulfur, and so that you can keep on living your life of unrepentance in defiance of God with a clear conscience. That's what you would expect. Uh, But I'm not going to do that, and this is why. The Bible overwhelmingly depicts salvation as something that is not a one-time event, but something that requires perseverance. In the 1700s, during the First Great Awakening, there was a Puritan pastor named George Whitfield. After he would preach, people would come up to him and say, Pastor, Pastor Whitfield, how many people got saved today at service? Instead of saying, you know, son, we had 14 salvations and six rededications. He said, we'll see in a few months. In a day of Christianity that's marked by cheap grace and easy believism, Whitfield's quote shows us that salvation is not something that is a momentary decision, but a 180-degree turn in lifestyle. And Jesus Christ would call that 180-degree change abiding. In John 8.31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Abiding is not a one-time act. It is an act of perseverance carried out over a lifetime of faith. If you're not a Christian today, I would plead with you to take what I'm saying seriously. Not to make some flippant decision because you've been told that praying a prayer is what saves you, but to turn to Christ, to bow the knee to Him out of acknowledgement that apart from Him, you will spend eternity separated from him in a very real place called hell. And there may be some people in this room who claim to be Christians who are not currently abiding in Jesus. Let me remind you that the mark of a true Christian is perseverance in the faith over the course of a lifetime. Tread cautiously, brothers and sisters, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Make your days on this earth count for things of eternal significance. Let's pray. Lord, this was not an easy passage to preach, and I would imagine for some not an easy passage to hear, But Lord, I believe it's what we needed today. If there's conversations that need to be had with you, with people in this room, with people outside this room, I pray that you'd make it happen. God, we can't change the fact that this world has fallen. but we can't abide in you. And that's a really good thing. Help us today to abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen.